Hey, what's up, Mile Higher homies? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast, episode 115. So today we're putting our true crime hats back on, and we are going to be discussing the case of Kaylee Sawyer and discussing Kaylee's law, um, which is very interesting why this was put in place. I think you guys should know about this story. It's definitely kind of a cautionary story. I think you can take a lot from it. And it's also very important that we just bring awareness to it, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. It's a crazy case with tons of twists and turns. But it really is. But before we get into all that, I definitely have a few news stories for you guys. And also, I wanted to remind everybody that I did come out with a new podcast called Lights Out. It's based around the paranormal and a lot of darker true crime content like serial killers and things like that. So if you haven't checked it out, would love for you to pop on over and uh, take a listen or a watch on the YouTube channel. Uh, we just covered an Ed and Lorraine Warren case, actually on the Smurl family, which is absolutely insane. Yeah. Uh, pretty spooky stuff. So Definitely if, you're, spooky. if you're into that kind of stuff, would love for you to come on over and uh, check out lights out. But I also wanted to thank our sponsor for today, Aveo vision. I really appreciate the support, but let's go ahead and jump into the first news story that we got today. So this week, a ton of you guys were, were hitting us up on Twitter and, and, you know, asking us if we'd seen the, the recent discovery that NASA supposedly came out with that they had found evidence of a parallel universe where time runs backwards. Well, I hate to break, you know, burst the bubble, but <laughs> unfortunately this isn't entirely true. They didn't necessarily find definitive evidence of a parallel universe, but they did detect some particle activity where they believe it runs backwards. So therefore they think maybe there's a possibility that these particles could be related to some type of parallel universe. So it's not like, we found a parallel universe. Mm -hmm. It's definitely true. It's there. You exactly. See it. Yeah. I think it was really confusing to people and it kind of, it came out on like April 8th. Yeah. It's, it's been out there for a while yeah. and somebody caught wind of, of the headline and then started, you know, tweeting it and, and making it go viral saying that, you know, NASA found, you know, evidence of a parallel universe. And then of course all these other media outlets started making stories about it. But yeah, this was an original report by the new scientists back in April. And so it's interesting how, you know, these headlines go viral and then everybody just sort of believes that they're true mm -hmm. without even looking into it further to see what actually happened. Right. So kind of the backstory behind this, in case you're wondering, you know, how this even came about. So scientists down in Antarctica are, are working on their ANITA, which is the Antarctic Impulsive Transient Antenna. And what they're doing is they're conducting cosmic ray experiments down there because Antarctica is kind of the ideal place to do this mm -hmm, because, you know, there's lots of wind down there. There's not a lot of radio activity down there. So they're able to really measure, you know, all these high energy particles that are raining down from space, which is kind of cool to think about that, you know, particles are, are coming from deep, you know, from far, far away. And we're sort of capturing them and, and measuring them with this uh, Anita device. And essentially, it's this stratospheric balloon that takes all these complicated instruments high into the air over Antarctica, where it searches for these things called tau neutrinos. Uh, and these tau neutrinos are trapped by solid state matter. And these high energy particles do not pass through Earth. And these high energy particles do not pass through Earth like their lighter, low energy cousins. But they should be originating from out in space, which is what we're used to seeing. And they move down towards us. However, the whole discovery behind the story is that scientists discovered something surprising, and that's tau neutrino particles that seem to be rising up from the Earth, implying that they're moving backward in time. 
So kind of a simplest explanation for this is that when the Big Bang occurred 13.8 billion years ago, it formed both our universe and potentially a mirror universe where time flows in reverse. So the strange particle activity, and again, I'm not an astrophysicist or, yeah. a, you know, I don't fully understand what I these tau neutrino particles this. are, but I just, what I do understand is that they're measuring these particles and that's how they're able to, uh, that's how they're able to find evidence that the big bang ever happened at all by measuring these. And by seeing that they're coming from within the earth, seemingly it makes them wonder like, is, are they coming through from some other type of universe that could exist running parallel alongside the earth? So it's, I don't know, it's, it's very interesting to consider because there's actually a lot of scientists out there that believe parallel universes do really do exist. I mean, Stephen Hawking's final paper actually threw out the theory of alternate universes. So it's something that scientists take very seriously and maybe this is evidence of it. Yeah. And there is quite a bit of evidence for it outside of this as well. A lot of people theorize that it's most likely that there are, you know, infinite number of universes all running alongside each other. And perhaps like we're perceiving these particles as being backwards in time, but in this other universe, it's normal. Like time works. Exactly. But to us, it appears to be going backwards in time. That's so trippy for me to wrap my brain around. And I think people just got totally caught up in this idea of like a parallel universe running backwards Mm. and, and you know, your mind goes down the rabbit hole and you start thinking like how crazy that would be. So no, we did not find a definitive proof of a parallel universe, but we are starting to find maybe some signs that this theory of parallel universes could be true. The next story that we've got for you guys is regarding poaching, actually. And in South Africa, they're training this elite dog unit in order to help combat the poachers that have been killing all the endangered wildlife down there. It's been a major problem. There's a rhino killed every 15 hours, they estimate. Really? Yeah. Yeah, it's getting really bad. Like we're the numbers of rhinos out there is dwindling at this point. And with the world, you know, going through lockdowns and all of that, poachers have been exploiting this, you know, because there's a lack of uh, employees and things like that out there. Yeah, poaching rates in South Africa were at their peak in 2015, and they've actually been doing a ton to lower those numbers, and they've got them down to almost in half since then. But the rhino population is still suffering. They're still endangered. It's still a major problem. And now with a lot of those, you know, uh, agencies that protect them, they're taking advantage of the situation and it's getting a lot worse just because of COVID. Yeah, exactly. And and not only that, but safari business has like stopped too. Right. Because, you know, safaris are going through these South Africa wildlife reserves and everything. And so there's constantly, you know, people out there and you're going to see poachers more often if there's more people sort of patrolling these areas and just to like give you a little bit of backstory on why rhinos are poached uh, is because their horns are Mm -hmm. worth a ton of money. They can fetch upwards to a hundred thousand dollars per kilogram on the black market. So they end up grinding down the horns into powder and then they sell the powder. Yeah, exactly. It goes for a lot. Yeah. And in Asia and China and places like that, they, they hold the, the rhino horn powder and, high regard for medicinal purposes and everything like that. But the way that they're getting it is obviously extremely cruel. They're often, Mm -hmm. you know, they often cut the horns off of them while they're alive and everything and, and just take the horns, leave their whole body. It's just sick. Yeah. It's really, really fucked up what they're doing. So this new dog unit though is pretty cool because it's helping uh, catch a lot of these poachers. And unfortunately since March, nine rhinos have been killed because of the lockdown measures and there haven't been as many people out there patrolling. 
However, they're training this team of elite dogs in order to help protect the wildlife there. And since they've, and since they've deployed these dogs, they've saved 45 rhinos from poachers. So the breeds of dogs that they're using include Belgian Malinois, uh, blue ticks, foxhounds, and Texan black and tan coonhounds. So they're really easy to train. They are, you know, instinctually good at hunting and tracking scents. So much better than a human can. I mean, it's really, really smart. Yeah, they're really the perfect dogs to do that. It's kind of funny because Lucy, we just found out, is a coonhound. Yeah, our new rescue. Uh, well, she's a mix of a lot of things, but yeah, her percent coonhound ish, blue tick, everything tan. She's like all of these. So yeah, she could be potentially a part of this elite canine group, and she's yeah, fast too. She That's could. the other thing. She's is a badass. All of these dogs are super fast. Mm-hmm. So not only is their uh, sense of smell so strong, but they're able to chase these poachers down and locate them extremely fast and efficiently. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty cool because they've actually been able to uh, improve the rate at which poachers are caught by an estimated 54%. That's huge. That's a huge increase for yeah. sure. Imagine if they can get these dog teams everywhere that there's a poaching issue. Yeah. And they're kind of uh, South Africa is really setting the tone for combating poaching. And yeah, maybe dogs are the answer to stopping it. It's kind of cool to have animals fighting back for other animals. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that. And I think, you know, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be Yeah, maybe because the success rate of, you know, just anti-poaching enforcement teams was only three to 5%. Wow. So it's gone up tremendously and yeah, maybe we'll actually be able to put a stop to it. But poaching is a really serious issue and it's really taking a toll on these endangered species. So Whatever we can do and whatever solutions we can come up with, you know, is definitely what needs to happen right now. And hopefully, you know, this elite trained canine unit spreads throughout the world and, you know, they're employed everywhere. But with that being said, let's go ahead and get into the case of Kaylee Sawyer. But before we do, we'd like to thank our sponsor for today. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about Kaylee Sawyer and who she was. So Kaylee was born on March 2nd, 1993. She was only two months younger than me at St. Charles Medical Center in Oregon, and she grew up in the peaceful town of Bend, Central Oregon, which is really known for its beauty. It is a gorgeous area. I've always wanted to go. I've done several videos that take place kind of in this area or in Oregon in general, and the scenery is always amazing. It just looks so pretty there. Oh, I know. When researching this case, I was just looking at images on Google, and I was like just blown away. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. so beautiful. It's like kind of like Colorado, but it's got more of like a you know, foresty ocean vibe. There's a lot more water there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the scenery is just stunning. Yeah, it's definitely somewhere we've got to check out. But Kaylee was born in Bend, like I said, and grew up there her whole life. And she knew Bend like the back of her hand. She loved living there and she lived there with her whole family. Her parents are named Jamie and Julie. They actually separated when she was younger, um, but they got remarried. So Jamie remarried Crystal Sawyer and Julie remarried Chris Van Cleve. And she had several brothers for Zach, Cody, <laughs> Zach and Cody, uh, Jaden and Caleb. And they were all a really close knit family. Kaylee was 23 at the time that all of this happens. And she was the oldest in the family and the only girl. So she was kind of, you know, their firstborn baby. They were very close with Kaylee, especially her and her mom. Yeah. And, and her family just remembers her as being like the light you know, that was Uh just the shining light at all their family events. She always had a smile on her face. She just, from everything that I gathered, she just seemed like this really, really sweet girl, 
really good natured. Everybody liked her. Yeah. You know, she was funny. Enemies. And yeah, she was just like an all around, just really good person. Mm hmm. Her hobbies included photography, drawing, poetry, and snowboarding. And she also wanted to be a dentist. She decided when she was pretty young, she wanted to be a dentist. And so she was currently at this time in her life, a dental assistant at Aubrey Dental and a student to become a dentist at Central Oregon Community College. Yeah, she really was passionate about it. It's kind of one of those things. She started working for the Aubrey Dental office and she really loved everybody that she worked with and all of her coworkers were older than her and really just yeah, loved her and loved working with her. And that's where she kind of fell in love with dentistry and, and decided that, you know what, I want to be a dentist. And that's what she was going to school for. The other love of her life was Cameron Reimhofer. He was her boyfriend of two years and the two of them lived near the college campus together. And it was a pretty serious relationship. She definitely saw a future with him. Her family really liked him, thought he was a great for her that said it, they had a great relationship and things were looking really good for them. They definitely had their future planned out and they had a lot to look forward to. Yeah, I think ultimately they probably would have gotten married and, you know, they shared an apartment together and yeah, I think they were very close. So definitely no like red flags or anything like that with the family or mm -hmm. any, any suspicions with him whatsoever. They loved Cameron. So summer of 2016, someone that Kaylee worked with at the dental office was having a bachelorette party. And at first, Kaylee wasn't going to be able to go. She had some other plans, but she ended up kind of reworking it so that she could show up. And she was really excited. It was kind of a last minute thing that she got to surprise her friend by being there. It was on Saturday, July 24th, 2016. And Kaylee was really excited to go out. She got all dressed up. She wore a black dress, black heels, typical bachelorette outfit. That's what <laughs> we wore to mine too. <laughs> and carried a green purse. And they had a really fun night. They were drinking and partying for hours and, you know, doing the, all the fun games and they had the sash and just having a good time, not a care in the world, just having fun with her friends. But after being at the bar for a few hours, you know, as she's getting more intoxicated, she started, you know, dancing and she ended up dancing with this other guy. And one of her boyfriend's friends actually saw this and you know alerted her boyfriend Cameron what was going on yeah he just happened to be there and saw her dancing mm -hmm. with another guy and again this was later on in the night so eventually Kaylee ended up sending Cameron her boyfriend a text around midnight asking him to come pick her up from the bar and so Cameron came down there and picked her up obviously they got into an argument probably because he knew about her dancing with this random guy at the yeah, bar that's gonna piss off any guy yeah i yeah. mean i would be kind of pissed oh, off you if, would yeah. oh my gosh you'd be so mad if janelle was like oh kendall's dancing with another guy at the bar you would have driven your ass down there so fast <laughs> you would have pulled my ass out of there i'd be like all right it's time to go you know you've had your fun you know let's yeah let's get it together here but it's a typical argument i'm sure a lot of couples have had this a similar argument you know and they were fighting on the way home so they fought all the way home from the bar to the apartment and they got there and they were still fighting and she didn't want to go upstairs with him right away. He's trying to get her upstairs, but she said, I need some time. I'll meet you up there. I need to cool off. And this is all kind of confusing how this exactly happened. But Cameron says that at this point she started taking a walk. And at one point he says he followed after her, chased after her, which it's like, how fast could she possibly have been going? Yeah. She's in heels. Like, yeah, I mean, she could have taken them off. You can run a lot faster, but still right. how fast could she possibly have been going that it's like, he can't catch her or continue to follow her at least. But anyway, he decides to go inside because Kaylee is known for taking these walks. Her mom says that she did this her whole childhood. That's how she blows off steam is kind of 
separating herself from the situation and taking a little walk. I think Cameron thought maybe she was just going to stay around the area. Didn't really know like how upset she was. And he went inside. Right. Which was a big mistake. Yeah. And I just want to note that their apartment is like on college way. So like they're right on campus because they're both going to school and everything. So it's not like they're, you know, in some random apartment complex, just on, you know, Mm -hmm. some part of town, they're literally on the campus. So I think in his mind, I mean, it is after midnight and even on a college campus, like it's not advisable to like go just walking by yourself because things do do happen. Right. But people do walk home after parties and whatnot alone or whatever. So Mm -hmm. I think in his head, he was like, well, you know, she's probably, she'll be fine. She'll be back in a few minutes. Like it's not going to be a big deal for me. I'm like, I would never, especially if you're intoxicated, I would never just let you wander off, you know, but on your own after midnight anywhere. So Cameron obviously goes upstairs inside the apartment and, you know, waits a few minutes and just, he's like, she'll come right back. But eventually started getting worried because around 1230, he still hadn't really heard from her. So he starts texting her and Kaylee actually replies to him. And this is the text exchange they had. So Cameron says, where are you? Please come home and talk to me. At least you're being unfair. Are you kidding? What a joke. I'm so sorry. I'm not good enough for you. I don't get how you can say that. If you wanted me, you could have, but you don't care. If you cared even a little bit, you'd know where I am. Sorry, I'm not as important as your phone. Kaylee, please just come home to be with me. I don't want to play this game. I'll start searching, but please help me out. My phone's about to die. Please don't do this to me. I apologize for being upset when I picked you up. I just drove up and down College Way really slow. I didn't see you and I don't know where else to go. Just come back. Are you kidding? Because that's bullshit. Goodbye. Phone off. Kaylee, please. And that's it. That's the last text he ever got from her. So he got worried to the point where he got back into his car and started searching for her. And he's probably thinking like, my God, like you wasn't that long, you Mm -hmm. know, that you were gone. And why can't I find her? Mm -hmm. So it's interesting because we don't totally know like where she went exactly, like Mm -hmm. what her path was after she left the apartment. We know that she started walking towards, you know, the campus and everything like that. That's about all we know though. Mm -hmm. And maybe he thought that she was going to go to like a friend's house for the night or something because eventually Cameron gave up looking for her. And as weird as it sounds, he went back to his apartment and went to sleep. Yeah. I just don't understand. It's hard to, you know, judge people in these situations, but I just don't know how you could go to sleep when your girlfriend's out there so upset and intoxicated and alone. It just, ah, I would not do that. And you would never let me just continue to walk out. Like there's no way. Especially, especially if your phone died. Yeah, absolutely. That to me is like alarming because Mm -hmm. I would never feel comfortable because I think he was probably thinking, well, she's upset, really mad at me. She's probably going to walk to a friend's house, Mm -hmm. stay there and then I'll see her tomorrow. We'll talk. But to me, I'm like, if you're saying your phone's about to die and I can't confirm, you can't, you know, tell me where you're going to go and that you're safe. That would be very concerning to me. And to him, I guess he just kind of assumed that everything was going to be okay and that she was going to get somewhere safely. And so he went to sleep. And I'm sure he feels guilty about that to this day, about this whole situation. Yeah, I'm sure he does. Because the next morning, Kaylee was nowhere to be found. And she and Cameron tried calling her, but she wasn't answering. And so he started going to all of her friends' houses to try to figure out if, you know, where she had gone and and stayed the night at because he assumed that that's what she had done. Mm -hmm. But you would think even if she did go to a friend's house, 
I'm trying to put myself in myself in his shoes. And if maybe like if you walked off mm. and you were mad at me or if, if my partner was mad at me or whatever and left, I w- even if I thought they were at a friend's house, I would contact that friend being like, yeah. oh, she's probably at X, Y, and Z's house. Mm-hmm. Hey, like, you know, just, or let's say, my best friend's name is Jess. So that's what I'm yeah. thinking of. Like if she left and was like, Hey, Jessica's gone and she's running around, you know, in college campus town by mm. herself drunk at night in the middle of the night, can you please check on her and make sure that, you know, mm. if she's here, can you let me know? Or can you help me look for her? Yeah, if she doesn't want to talk to me, can you at least, you know, maybe try and go talk to her yourself or any, just because I'm worried about her safety, you know, it's weird that he just kind of was like, oh, well, I'm assuming that she's at her friends or I'm assuming that she's walking around or she'll come back. Hopefully let me go to bed. Yeah, it's it's very strange and it definitely is a warning to people listening that if someone walks off in the middle of the night intoxicated, you always make sure they are found and you can at least figure out where they are even if they don't come home for the night. That's a great point. He should have contacted her friends. And again, he probably feels so bad about this and I, I hate to like pile on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. sure he of course feels all this guilt and knows that this wasn't a good idea, but it, I mean, we have to point out how unsafe that was mm-hmm. and well, and I think unfortunately, some people get this false sense of security, mm-hmm. uh, especially, especially at a college, college campus. campus. You is, assume that ugh, it's safe it's and not. that there's people, you know, there's police and there's security and whatnot, and you know everything is secure. And, and especially in this town, I mean, you know, they always say like in this peaceful town, nothing ever yeah. like happens. But <laughs> yeah. let's be real, shit happens everywhere, and the worst of the worst happens. And so you can never assume. You always got to, you know play on the safe side because you just never know. Yeah. So Cameron is, you know, calling everybody. Nobody knows where she is. So he's really starting to freak out at this point. So he starts calling her parents and he starts by calling her dad, Jamie and Jamie and his wife were in church at the time, actually. And they remember like sitting in church and his phone just kept going off, like vibrating and and going off. Mm -hmm. And so eventually he like looks down at his phone and he sees, you know, I can't find Kaylee anywhere. Like call me. And, you know, obviously that's going to cause parents to start freaking out. Like, holy shit, where is our daughter? Leave church immediately. Mm -hmm. So by Sunday afternoon, there was still nothing from Kaylee. No texts, no calls, no sightings. And her parents were already starting to freak out. Cameron's definitely freaking out at this point. And everyone's worried. Yeah. And her phone is just going straight to voicemail. So that to me tells me really she didn't get her phone charged up. Like most people especially if it dies the night before and you're drunk, the first thing you're going to do is like charge your phone. Yeah. If she like went to a friend's house, she would have like plugged it in on their charger and everything. Yeah. That's a huge concern that it's still off. She's not trying to at least tell her parents where she is. Mm -hmm. Uh, A dead cell phone is always like just the worst feeling. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy to think about what happened back in the day when you didn't even have cell phones. We take it for granted now to be able to like, you know, where find my friends and where is my iPhone and all that stuff. It's like, back when you had no idea of tracking people, it's just, it's crazy how much we take it for granted and how scary it gets when all of a sudden we don't have this little like GPS device with us anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, the cell phone is such like a appendage to our bodies. Like we go everywhere with it. It's like, especially in the millennial generation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We know that that's like our, the main way everybody communicates. Mm -hmm. So when it's off and it's been off for a long period of time without explanation, that's when things just get, it gets really concerning for people because you're like, why the hell is her phone still off? Like she always, she never like, she charges it back up. Like it might be off for a little bit for this reason, but the fact that it's still off and every, everybody's calling and it's just going to voicemail is just causing everybody to start freaking out. 
So at this point, Cameron also had told Kaylee's mom, who was very, very upset because she and Kaylee were really close. And it was very, very out of character for her not to have reached out to at least her mom. Right. Um, so at that point, they're all just really worried. So Cameron decides to call 911 and report her as a missing person. So here's that call. Dispatch, how can I help you? Hi. Um, I'm not sure if this is quite the right number to call. Last night, I got home from the bars with my girlfriend, and she got upset at me and ran off. Mm-hmm. And I chased her and wasn't able to find her, and I still haven't heard from her. Her phone's off. I called all her family, and they haven't heard from her, so I'm wondering what you recommend I do. Where was she last seen at? Um, College Way. Um, Alpine Meadows Apartment Complex. It's like at the top of College Way. In that apartment complex? In the parking lot. Just in the parking lot? You guys yeah, don't live my, there? Or? Yes, we live there together. Okay, what's the address? Yeah. About what time? Uh, it was like 1 o'clock in the morning. She mad at me, so I walked inside and told her to come meet me, and then when she's like, calm down. And then I went back out in 10 minutes, and she was gone. And I called her a few times, and she said she was walking down the street. And then I guess she said her phone was about to die. And then she, I couldn't get a hold of her after that. I haven't heard from her since. Okay. And does she have a vehicle? Is it parked in the parking lot? or? She has a vehicle. It's parked at her friend's house. And I've been over there and talked to her friend, and she hasn't heard from her either. And the vehicle's still there? Yep. Any idea where she would go? or? Uh, I don't know. All the, I figured she'd go where her car was, her best friend's, or her mom's. I've been over to both. Talked to her dad, and I just haven't heard anything from anybody knowing us. Does she go to like have a job that she needs to be out that she missed or anything or anything like that? Not today. She has work tomorrow at Aubrey Dental. All right. We'll uh, have an officer get in contact with you. If she gets in contact with you, they'll give us a call back. Okay. We'll right. do. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. And meanwhile, her mom is getting together with her friends, and they're starting to already work on a missing poster because mm-hmm. I think moms have an intuition as mm-hmm. far as like feeling you know have that feeling that something is off something is wrong and i think they knew right away that something was wrong her mom said that she just had a sense that kaylee wasn't with her anymore and it's interesting i've heard that in so many cases where the parents like know that the person is deceased already before anyone else does right yeah it's very interesting i think there's definitely an unseen connection there that as a parent you just have with your children and you just ha- kind of have that sixth sense with, uh, about those types of things. Mm-hmm. So eventually Kaylee's mom decided to call the police herself because she was really worried that they weren't going to take it seriously enough because she's 23 years old. She's a college student. She could have just left on her own and you can disappear as an adult. You can legally do that. So she decided to call and tell the police that she had epilepsy and she did have some type of history of seizures. I don't know if it was a diagnosed condition. They weren't super specific about that. But she said that she went ahead and exaggerated it because, you know, and I don't blame her at all. If you need police and you need, you got to do what you got to do for your kids. She felt like they would take it more seriously and there'd be more urgency if she had a serious medical condition. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense why she did that. But well, not only that, but she knows that in most missing person cases, it's like 48 hours before they can actually like Mm -hmm. really start searching because people are allowed to go missing. I mean, you're allowed to disappear. It's your right as an adult Mm -hmm. to not tell anybody and just go off and and do whatever you want to do. So yeah. And that was kind of, I think she thought it would be something like that, but that's kind of an old thing. They don't really do that as much anymore with missing people. Like most police departments will start to search right away. Like the whole 48, I mean, some, some places were like 72 hours back in the day, but 
Uh, that's pretty much gone now. If you push enough at police, like they normally have to file a police report, or especially a if you tell them, right away. especially if you tell them that they have like a disability or some type of mental yeah, illness or exactly. anything like that, or, you know, medical condition mm-hmm. in her case, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it just yep. ups the severity. Definitely. Well, and also the circumstances as well as the information that they probably gave police at the time, you know, we've checked with everybody that would have known where she would have been and nobody has found her. So, and also the fact that they're putting up missing flyers, posters everywhere, all over town. Obviously the parents are starting to think there could be some type of abduction, I think in this case, because I mean, I think they realize that after checking everywhere that that's kind of the only likely solution is that she, you know, she got abducted by somebody. Well, at first too, I mean, police, they don't know Cameron. Her family never suspected Cameron because they really trusted him. I mean, they, they said we had to at least think about it because it is statistically makes more sense that it is the partner in a lot of missing cases or murders. It's oftentimes it is the partner and it's the last person who saw them and he's both of those. So he definitely looks suspicious, especially to police. So I think he was like majorly on their radar when this all was going down at first. Yeah, I mean, so much so that they went over to the apartment and immediately interviewed him about what had happened while, you know, everybody's searching the nearby area for any sign of Kaylee. And it's interesting because when police were interviewed about this, they said that it did not take them long to kind of rule him out as a suspect. I mean, he was the last person that saw her before she went missing. But I think they realized really quickly, like how much he was worried and cared about her and you know his story lined up i mean it was pretty easy to verify his story Mm -hmm. and verify you know those last that last time that he saw her Mm -hmm. so it i I think they came to the conclusion fairly quickly that he was likely had nothing to do with her disappearance Mm -hmm. other than the fact that he you know upset her and she ran off but as far as anything more than that or like malicious like he killed her or something yeah that wasn't really a, a thought just by his behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the parents were kind of in the same boat. They yeah. kind of maybe for a minute thought me, but they're like, no, there's no, no way he would never hurt her. And I mean, he was just torn up about this. Yeah. Like he probably, I can't even imagine him on that day. Oh my God. Like he must've just been, I would just Dude, be a mess. I'd be to this day. I'm sure he carries so much guilt. That's It's only been like four years. Mm-hmm. He's probably messed up over this whole thing. I feel so sorry for him. Mm-hmm. God. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that would be like. Yeah. So police rule Cameron out fairly quickly and then they start thinking, okay, what other suspects could there be? Mm -hmm. And you know, that's when the random boy that she had been dancing with at the Mm -hmm. bar comes up and they're like, okay, we need to go talk to him because there is a possibility that maybe, you know, she called him or, you know, went to meet up with him and just didn't tell anybody Mm -hmm. or maybe he did something, you know, malicious to her. So the police actually track this guy down and they go and talk to him. But the guy's like, whoa, like, I just danced with her for a bit, flirted with her for a bit. That was it. Like Mm -hmm. I have no idea where she is or what happened. Uh So, you know, he got ruled out pretty quickly too. After talking to the guy that she had met with at the bar, the police were left with nothing. I mean, there was seemingly no leads. There was Mm -hmm. no, no ideas as to what had happened to her. So they started thinking that maybe she just kind of like went off the grid for a little bit. It would be so unlike her. I think that's stupid when the police start assuming that about people. She just wanted some privacy. No, there's so many predators out there and human trafficking is rampant in this country. Like, why would that at all be what you assume? Well, you have to consider it, you know, because there are cases like the recent one. Madison Madison, Bell. There you go. That's true. Everyone was, I mean, that everyone was looking for her. The concern was nationwide and it turns out she left on purpose. So it does happen. Disappearance. Yeah, it does happen. It's true. So as a, you know, 
police officer, you have to consider all possibilities. Mm-hmm. And and obviously more often than not, it ends up being, you know, something far worse than just going off the grid, but you do have to kind of play that scenario through and rule it out. You know, you mm-hmm. got to go through and, and figure out each of those scenarios and see, definitely, you know, and make sure you rule it out before you move on to the next one. So they kind of were going with maybe she went, went off the grid for a few days for the rest of the weekend or something, but she will show up at work because she loved her job at the dental office. So yeah. Monday was she coming took that up very seriously. Right. And this is Sunday at this point. So like, okay, let's all just hold on. You know, maybe she just took off for a couple of days and she'll show up for work Monday morning. And unfortunately she did not show up for work on Monday morning. And that's when things really, yeah. you know, went up a few notches and they're like, okay, we got to start taking this more seriously because it was really out of character for her to mm-hmm. not show up for work. At one point, they got pings from Kaylee's phone and they were shown moving around to different parts of Bend. So they thought maybe she really had left and was just trying to blow off some steam. But then it turned out that those pings were actually from an old phone that was just registered to Kaylee. So it was under her Apple ID or whatever. And, you know, a friend was using the tablet and it looked as if it was Kaylee. So that road is another dead end. So they're really, they're feeling like they have nothing. Like, where do we even turn from here? But that all changed on July 25th, 2016. So on Monday, a woman named Isabel Lara came into the police department. I believe it was the Redmond Police Department police station. And she came in and she was sitting there waiting in the waiting room because she wanted to speak to a supervisor. And obviously, in order to do that, you got to wait. And she was sitting there for quite a while. And then one of the sergeants actually brought her back and asked her, you know, like, what do you what do you want to talk about? Because they actually recognized this woman because she was actually a police recruit mm-hmm. at a neighboring police department. So they were familiar that she was like a police recruit. And so they were very kind of like, what's going on? Like, it's kind of weird that she's just sitting in there. Like she knows how this all works. And if she, you know, what, what do they want? To, what does she want to talk to us about? Mm-hmm. So she goes back to meet with police officers and she then tells them that her husband, Edwin, Laura, who is also kind of in this world. He's a security officer, possibly wanting to become an officer one day. And she said that that day he came up to her and just looked messed up, like really upset. He seemed like something was clearly really wrong with him. And he sat her down and he told her that he had killed a girl on Saturday night and freaked out and got rid of her body and didn't know what to do, that he was panicking, he's freaking out. And then as soon as he tells her this, he packs up all his stuff and leaves the house. So she heads to the police department and tells them this. Right. And so they're completely shocked by this news. And, and what's interesting is they knew pretty much right away. Cause I mean, this police department uh, knew that Haley Sawyer was missing. And so they kind of connected the dots real quickly that this girl that he must've hit must be this missing girl, mm-hmm. Kaylee Sawyer. Mm-hmm. So this police sergeant, then I think it was towards the end of, of Monday, so they said, okay, we want you, we want to do a more in-depth interview with you and bring in a detective that's helping on the case. Cause this ended, this case ended up being investigated by multiple mm-hmm. agencies. So the following morning they bring in Deschutes County detective, James McLaughlin, and as well as Sergeant Beckwith, and they sit down and they go over the whole story and they get the whole timeline and do a full blown interrogation with Isabel. So here's the footage from that. So could you tell me um, kind of how this whole thing transpired? So he comes out of the room and his eyes were all teary. 
That's what I'm like, what happened? Tell me what happened. What? What's wrong? So he sits on the sofa. I turn off the TV. And then he just says that. He's like, I, I kill a woman. That's what he said. And I'm like, what do you mean? Then he's like, I hit her with the car. He said the the security, the the job, the car that they used at the job. And what and what did you say to that? So I'm like, what do you mean? What 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 do you mean you hit her? And he's like, yeah, I hit her and I panic. And I'm like, what is what do you mean by you hit her panicking? What did you do? Did did he say I hit her in a panic? He said, I don't remember exactly the words that he said, but he said something that he hit her with the car yeah. and then he panicked. Okay. So then I asked him, like, that's what I was trying for him to explain to me. So you hit her with the car. That's an accident. Yeah. Why? What do you mean you panic? What, what do you mean? And what did he say? He just kept saying, I panic. And at that point, he's already, like, he got up and he's already, like, going into the room and walking back and forth and I'm not really quite understanding what he's telling me he said that he hit her with the car the car at work and I asked him well where is there any signs that you hit her or what and then he said that it was because of the grill that no there was no signs and then I'm like so what did you do with the body what and he's like I hit her he said, he said something in regards to there's her stuff is in the shed. Her stuff is in the shed. Did he say when this happened? <laughs> so he just said. He's just telling the story. He just yeah he just hit the like when he was working that Sunday morning he didn't give me like a time. So the audio isn't great for interrogation footage oftentimes. So we're gonna kind of explain this to you in case that was confusing at all. Right. So here's the general gist of her timeline that she gave for Edwin. So she said that Edwin came home after working his Saturday night shift, which I believe he works what's called a swing shift, which means he starts probably about five in the afternoon, four in the afternoon, and it ends around two, 2 a.m. So he came home really late and went to bed like normal. Isabel didn't really remember exactly what time he got home. All she remembered was all she remembered was that it was really late. Then on Sunday morning, they woke up early as they always did and went to church. And that's a big part of this case is Edwin is a very devout Christian person. He is very into his religion. It's a huge part of his life. He's not just one of those people who goes to church because he feels like he has to, or he's just kind of, you know, not that serious about it. He was very, very into his religion, believed it 100%, lived by it. And it was just, I mean, it was, he had his Bible all marked up. It was like a huge part of his being. Yeah, and he was even thinking. in the he was even in the church band. Yeah, he was very active in his church. They went every single Sunday. Right. And what's interesting is that Isabel admits that Edwin was acting kind of quiet and reserved, and she assumed it was just because of their relationship. It seemed like their relationship was kind of going through a rough yeah. patch and and was struggling because. I think she was going, you know, they're both kind of in law enforcement. Edwin's the campus security officer at the mm -hmm. uh, Central Oregon Community College. And then she is a police recruit for Ben Police Department. But after church, Edwin, Isabel, and Edwin's cousin, Vinny, went to see the horror movie, Lights Out. There's a movie called Lights Out. 
at their local movie theater. Stole your title, Josh. <laughs> actually, I've never seen this horror movie, actually, Lights Out. I should watch it. Yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> so after they go to the movies, they then drop uh, his cousin Vinny off at his house, and then they went back home and eventually went to bed that night. And then on Monday morning, Isabel says she woke up at around 9 a.m. and Edwin and stayed in bed a little bit longer. Isabel says she watched TV, then turned on the sprinklers, and eventually Edwin came out of the bedroom, and Isabel could see that he was clearly upset. I think he had a long night. He probably wasn't sleeping well. And I'm pretty sure he came out and like he was like crying, like yeah. tears were coming out of his eyes. Yeah. He was clearly very, very upset. And that's when he tells her that he accidentally hit and killed 23-year-old Kaylee Sawyer, who was obviously missing at this point, and he hit her with his campus security car. So he said that he was driving around in his campus security car. And it was dark. She was wearing all black. And essentially he was going faster than he probably should have been and just hit her. And he said he kind of lightly hit her too. Hmm. But then he said that he panicked after hitting her and he decided to hide her body and he put Kaylee's belongings in their shed. Which just sounds ridiculous too. Absolutely anyone, especially for someone who's into the world of criminal justice and is a security guard. Why on earth would you get rid of the body? I mean, what if you accidentally hit someone? You, it's just not what anyone would do. So it seems extremely weird. And that's what his wife was saying to police is why would somebody hit and then get rid of their body? And it doesn't make sense for him specifically because he, first of all, he's this really Christian person. He's always like preaching about being a good person. He wants to be a public servant. He wants to help the community. So it's very weird coming from someone like him. And if you truly accidentally hit somebody, you're going to call 911 on the yes. spot, try to save their life. You're going to do every, you're a freaking security yeah. officer. That's your job. You're yeah. getting paid to keep people safe. It seemed very out of character for him. Exactly. But was it right? And that's what, she started telling police and police are obviously starting to put the pieces together. Like, okay, this guy, something's wrong with yeah. this guy. Cause then she something's says this statement, right? Exactly. And then she says he grabbed her gun out of her purse and then got into his car and took off. So obviously like what the hell? So after she tells him all of this, the police obviously think this is more of like a hit and run type accident. And mm -hmm. you know, he hit and killed her and then he just took off and fled because he committed a crime. So he's just running away from his crime, essentially, because Lieutenant Beckwith actually said that we knew he was dangerous based on his wife's statements. And when you do those investigations, you try not to make assumptions that it was an accident. But in our minds, we knew that that's not what a reasonable people would do. Some people right. leave the scene of accidents because they're scared, but they return a short time later or something like that. But that's not what Ed did. Mm -hmm. So police are. Yeah, they know that they need to find this guy and they need to find him quick. Right. And so he becomes prime suspect number one and they still don't know where Kaylee is because clearly he hit the body mm -hmm. and that's they're trying to find where she is at this point and they're thinking that maybe she is still alive out there there is a chance especially if he hit her with his car maybe right. he maybe she was unconscious and he stashed her body somewhere and woke up and she's confused and has you know some type of memory issue right now I mean it's a, it's a very slim chance but of course you've got to treat it as if that's a possibility here yeah I mean, bottom line is, is that police want to find Kaylee as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. So they get a search warrant and they go to the Laura residence and they search it completely. And what's interesting is that in their bedroom, they found that Bible that we mentioned that had all of the, you know, verses and scriptures written into it. And mm -hmm. 
Detective McLaughlin was actually a pastor uh, at one point. So he thought he found this like truly bizarre that this seemingly extremely Christian and religious person would do something like this. But then detectives make a very, very gruesome discovery inside Edwin and Isabel's shed. Mm -hmm. They see this trash bag that's just got some random stuff in it. And so they open this trash bag up and inside is all of Kaylee's belongings. They found her green purse that she was wearing that night and it was completely soaked in blood. And inside of her purse, it was filled with all of her other belongings, such as her passport and her ID. So they know that this is Kaylee's stuff. They also found a clump of blonde hair stained red with blood. And they found a boulder that was covered in blood, like drenched. And they figured that this had to have been the murder weapon. Yeah. And right then and there, they knew that this was not a hit and run accidental accident gone wrong Mm -hmm. that this was a homicide. Yeah. And with the amount of blood, they know there's probably very little chance she is still alive. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And inside another tire, they found Edwin's work uniform. And what's so creepy and eerie about this is that in the shed, they found this presentation board that Edwin did in his psychology class on the railroad killer, which was a drifter that was accused of killing at least 15 people in the late 1990s. And they opened this thing up and Edwin had created this really like gruesome looking presentation board. He had like bloody handprints and splatter all over it, obviously with paint. Yeah. He was like a little too into this project Mm -hmm. and he had printed off graphic pictures of at least one of the victim's bodies and put it on this board. So obviously between this, the boulder, all of her belongings, they're starting to get a clear picture of who Edwin really is. And unfortunately at this point in time, the police have to change the case from a missing persons case to a homicide case, as well as notify the family of this change. And what's so horrible about this is that I think the family for the most part was still holding out hope that she was out there. And I mean, they're out there searching. They had groups, volunteers, they were combing the entire area and so maybe, I mean, maybe the rest of them, but her mom did say she had a feeling from the beginning. She was no longer alive. Right. So the police are on their way to the family's residence in order to break the news to them that this is now a homicide case. How devastating. So they send police to each of the parents' houses to notify them that we're sorry to say that we believe that Kaylee is no longer with us and that this is a homicide case. And the parents just remember this moment and just how gut wrenching and like the, I think her father said, have you ever been hit in the chest with a sledgehammer or something like that? And just the feeling mm-hmm. uh, of hearing that news and hearing about, you know, what they had found in the shed, oh, the details, Ugh, I really can't even wrap my head around trying to find, like finding out that information about my family member. Like I wouldn't even be able to process it. That they met your this, child. Yeah. She met so this awful. horrific, you know, end. it's yeah, just, yeah, they're like, what the hell? How did this happen? And then for them to find out that they believe the number one suspect at this point is Edwin, the campus security officer. How maddening is this to hear? That's just so upsetting. And after they found, you know, her items so soaked in blood, they knew they had to move quickly here because now he's a dangerous person. He's a guy who's clearly unstable. He's, you know, making irrational decisions And now he's out on the run and he's got a gun with him. Right. I mean, it's terrifying. They're thinking he's probably out to find his next victim, which is exactly what he was doing. Mm -hmm. Exactly what he was doing. 
And so they, they wanted to talk to Isabel more because now they know this guy is not this, you know, guy that they think he is originally. There's something much more sinister to him. So they ask Isabel more questions and they say, does Edwin have any anger issues if he was violent or if he drank? And Isabel said that, that he actually quit drinking when they went back to church and she had never known him to be violent. But she did say that he had recently had an affair with a woman he had met in California where some of Edwin's family lives, actually. Uh, he's originally from the L.A. area, I believe. So that also helped police sort of map out where Edwin might be heading. And it really seems like if Edwin was on the run, that he'd be heading to where his family was because he had some family in uh, Bend, but it wasn't you know super close family or real immediate family. So his immediate family was in California. She said that he had begged for her forgiveness and she did take him back and they were kind of working through it. But, you know, their relationship was super rocky at the time. And then they asked her if he was happy that she was getting into law enforcement. And Isabel said that Edwin had initially been supportive, but things started falling apart when she entered the academy. And after she had found out about the affair, she said she had gone on several ride alongs with him at his job at the community college. So like as she's going through the academy, because Edwin's kind of doing you know, like what a campus police officer would do. Mm -hmm. And at community colleges, they usually don't have the budget to pay a full blown, you know, post-certified officer. So they have the security. So, and they're like, okay, well, you know, do you know much about what he does or where he would go? Cause they're trying to figure out where Kaylee might be. If in fact he did kill her, his, her body must be somewhere near the campus most likely. Mm -hmm. And also they wanted to find out if he worked alone or if somebody might have been working with him that they could go talk to to try to figure out, you know, more about what happened that night. But Isabel told them that he worked alone most often. But the police really wanted to find out, like, what his patrol uh, route was like. Like, where did he go? And what they found out was is that there was this parking lot called the B12 parking lot. And this parking lot never had anybody in it at all. And he would often go up there. And in order to get to these different parking lots, there was dirt roads and, you know, all these places where there would be nobody around. And, you know, it might give him an opportunity to commit a murder mm -hmm. if he was going to do that. They also ask Isabel to call him. And so she does, but it goes straight to voicemail. And meanwhile, while they're interrogating her more, they are. And meanwhile, while they're interrogating her and they're trying to get a hold of Edwin, Edwin is on the run mm -hmm. and getting as far away from Bend as he can. Okay, so we're going to go back in time a little bit here to the day before, Monday, July 25th. A girl named Andrea Mays, who was only 19 years old, is walking out of her car after a double shift at Ross, uh, Dress for Less, in Salem, Oregon. And I mean, it was like a 12 hour day. She said she was super, super tired. And she got in the car to take a, like a selfie for Snapchat and just talk, you know, just be like, I'm so tired, really long day. And she didn't think anything of it. She was just in her car kind of recapping with social media and reading a Facebook message when suddenly a stranger's arm shot through her window into her car. Holy shit. Yeah. I'd be f so freaked out. Yeah, and at first she didn't really even like understand what was happening. She thought it was like a coworker playing a prank yeah. on her or something. Like she had no idea what was about to happen. And this stranger put his arm through the window in order to unlock her door and then just got into the passenger seat. Oh, that's my worst nightmare. So scary. And this stranger is none other than Edwin Lara. 
and he's armed. He's got a backpack with him and he's wearing a bulletproof vest. So in his timeline, this is right after or a few hours after he tells his wife what he's done. Right. Yeah. Because after he left the house, he drove south and ended up in Salem, Oregon a few hours later. What's really creepy about this, though, is that he was actually sitting in that parking lot for a while waiting for a victim. Mm -hmm. And that's when he saw her because she actually Andre actually came out of Ross and that's when he spotted her initially. And then she like forgot something and then went back into the store. Mm -hmm. But he was like out there for a while kind of stalking her and waiting for his opportunity to uh, for her to be his next victim. And people often look for people who are on their phones, who are distracted. I mean, it's like the perfect target. Yeah. And unfortunately her window was rolled down yeah. so he could stick his arm through it. I mean, like oh, that's uh, so scary, keep your windows rolled up, especially, you know, at the end of a, a late shift like that. Cause mm-hmm. this is late Monday night after Ross is closing, she mm-hmm. closed the store and everything, but Edwin's in the car, he's in the passenger seat and he's got the gun pointed at her, uh, kind of hidden in his lap, but she knows that, you know, something is going down and you know, she starts to get really worried. Well, at first she said she thought it was like just a joke. And she said she even started laughing when he first pointed the gun at her. She was like, are you fucking serious? Like, what are you talking? This is not real right now. And it's probably a coping mechanism that she started laughing. But then he was like, no, and put the gun right to her thigh and was like, I will shoot you. I Stop laughing. This isn't a joke. Right. And at that point, she realized what was going on. She said her face just started burning and she started panicking and she's just gripping the steering wheel, driving this guy, not having any idea what his intentions are. I mean, it's like every person's worst nightmare. Yeah. And she doesn't know that this guy just murdered somebody like the day before. So she, so he tells her, I need to get to California. And she's like, Oh my God, like what the hell now? Like what's going to happen to me? So they start heading to California and after only driving for about an hour, Edwin made her pull over and he told her that she was driving too fast uh, because he was worried that, you know, she was going to get pulled over for speeding. And so he told her that, you know, you need to drive, you know, the speed limit. So, you know, we don't track police's attention. That's actually a really good idea. Speed or try to break the lawn somehow. If you're like, you know, have someone in the car with you and you're held at gunpoint. I'd be speeding, running stop signs, trying to get the police attention as much as I can. Yeah, that's like probably the most interesting thing about Andrea and why she's kind of a hero in all of this and really a, you know, a role model for how you should act in these kinds of situations cuz she actually says that she was really into true crime. She watched she all kinds of true crime shows on TV. So she felt she was kind of prepared for this type of situation in a way. Obviously not prepared for the mental anguish and physical anguish of this, but she was smart in the fact that she kind of knew what she should do in order to get herself help. And she kind of did does that every step of the way. Yeah. She's a great example of what to try to do in these situations. And another example of this is actually uh, when Edwin starts trying to like make small talk with her and tries to like get all this information out of her. And she's like, I'm not going to tell you anything. And she was kind of giving him, you know, shit back and being like, I'm not going to talk to you. Like screw you. Yeah. Getting angry with him. And, and she really frustrated Edwin. And she said that she didn't care. She got to the point where she thought she was probably not going to make it out of this alive anyway. And so she was like, you know what, what do I have to lose? Let me, you know, piss this guy off. And it was working. I mean, he, she started intimidating him in a way, Mm -hmm. but then the conversation kind of takes a turn for the worse because 
Edwin starts just kind of opening up to her about his life and about his wife being a cop, although he doesn't tell her that he was a campus security officer, which is interesting. Then he just kind of casually starts talking to her about murdering Kaylee. And Andre actually said that he was showing me pictures of his wife and he's like, oh, I'm a cop. I don't know if you heard what happened to the girl I just killed. He was trying to show me the article and I had no idea what was going on at the time, but I was just like, this guy is on something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, literally pulling up like articles of Kaylee and like, look, this is the girl I killed and stuff. Like I guess proud of it. trying to scare her, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't Maybe know. that would make her behave more if she was scared of him. I don't know what his thinking was. It's hard to imagine what was going on in this guy's mind. But this kind of definitely took things up, up a notch for her. Cause she realized that I'm, I'm in potential danger here. This guy, this guy could really kill me. And so this whole time she's just trying to keep herself calm. And then after a few hours after driving together, Edwin decided that they should stop at a roadside motel in Southern Oregon. And what's crazy is that when they stop here, there's actually surveillance footage Uh, which if you're watching this on YouTube, we'll overlay it for you. But she said that he made me pretend to be his girlfriend and like hold my hand. Mm -hmm. And it was the most awful feeling ever being forced to act like something when you know what's going on. And she also said, I always wondered how the motel clerk didn't notice any signs. I'm Mm -hmm. this young looking girl with an older looking guy and I'm looking completely torn up, no makeup. And I had been crying. I mean, he had warned her act normal. Don't act like, like if you give them any sign, I'll kill you, you know? And they had also gone to McDonald's. They had gone to, I think a gas station too. And she interacted with several people right in front of him and was trying to give them signals, but couldn't be too obvious because he was there. But it definitely teaches you to be more aware of situations like this. It doesn't look right, you know? And if something doesn't feel right, you got to say something because you can totally save someone's life. Yeah. Trust your gut. Yeah. I mean, especially if you're an employee and somebody comes into your place of business and it, you definitely feel like very suspicious about it, mm-hmm. especially with a, a male female type situation right. and with sex trafficking and all of that. It's definitely worth, you know, like it doesn't hurt to just call the police and have them come check it out and just, yeah. you know, verify the situation. And unfortunately mm-hmm. nobody did this for her. And yeah, I mean, it, this just kept going on and on. But after they get the hotel keys, they go to their room and he ends up handcuffing Andrea to the bathroom door and he used a t-shirt to wrap around her head while he showered. So obviously he was worried about her like trying to escape or something like that. So he handcuffed her to the bathroom door. Then after he got out of the shower, he tells her to take a shower in front of him disgusting oh it's so fucked up i just oh it makes me furious what a sicko i know it's so upsetting and what was interesting is she you know she wasn't afraid of him it seemed like i mean she was afraid of her situation but i think she knew that this guy is like she could outsmart him and so she was like absolutely not i'm not going to shower in front of you that's just not gonna happen she was like i'd rather you kill me right now than me shower in front of you yeah she refused completely And then after that, Edwin uncuffs her and then recuffs her to the bed frame as he's preparing sleeping pills for her to take. And he basically forced her to take the sleeping pills. Otherwise, he said that he had syringes that he was going to use and just put her out himself, Mm -hmm. which I mean, it's like if you're in this situation, if he really had syringes, which he didn't, you would think that he would have just used that as opposed to like, here, take this sleeping pill. So she did take the pill, um, but she found, but she tried really hard not to fall asleep, which is difficult. But I'd imagine in that situation, even if you take a sleeping pill, you could probably keep yourself awake with adrenaline. 
Yeah, but I think he gave her, I don't know what pill exactly. I would imagine he probably gave her something like Ambien or something pretty strong. Maybe if he had access to that, it could have just been like a unison. We don't know what it was. That's true. That's true. But she was extremely worried that if she did fall asleep, then Edwin would try to take advantage of her. Absolutely, that's what he wants to do. He doesn't want to just send her to sleep. Right. He knows that she's going to fight back every step of the way. And the only way he's going to be able to take advantage of her is if he knocks her out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because literally the next thing that happens is Edwin leans over to her and starts licking her earlobe. Oh, my gosh. Oh, God. Okay, I know this is so off topic, but I had an ex-boyfriend who would lick. (gasps) Okay, he didn't even make it to boyfriend stage. I dated a guy who kept licking my ear and I literally ended the relationship with him because it wasn't even... It was like in public. We were at like football oh games and he just lick my ear. I'd be like, what the fuck, bro? That's weird. That really creeps me out. That's really weird. But you know what's crazy is just as he starts being creepy towards her, an alarm goes off on her phone. And this is almost like a gift from the heavens. This truly saved her. And she thought so quickly and said that this is actually an alarm for a medication I have to take because I have an STD. It's honestly genius. It's so like, smart. I would have never thought to do that. It's so smart. Because this literally deters him from probably raping her at this point. Oh, absolutely. He was planning to 100% before mm-hmm. this happened. Yeah. And she apparently he like was like, what What do you mean? What STD? And like he pressed her for more information. And she said that she just tried to be as disgusting and graphic about it as she could in attempt in, in an attempt to try to deter him from uh, taking advantage of her. So after that doesn't work out for Edwin, he then gets on the phone and starts talking in Spanish to somebody. Andrea actually does speak Spanish, but she says she can only pick up on bits and pieces of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And plus, she's just mentally completely exhausted and at this on point. sleeping pills. Yeah, fighting to stay awake at this point. But she said that he sounded extremely paranoid and that he told the person on the phone that they were sending helicopters and that he had to go. And... I don't know if necessarily there was helicopters. This is like a recurring thing with Edwin that he's hearing helicopters. Oh so his mental state is definitely yeah. completely he's out of whack. Yeah. Having some type of break. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely breaking down for sure. So, so, ask, so oh. he starts gathering all their stuff and gets Andrea out of the bed and says, we're going to move. And she tried to say, let's, you know, just leave me here you know, continue on on your own. Why do you need me to go with you? But he refused. And the reason for this is Edwin said he wanted to use her as a human shield. He's like, they won't shoot me if I have you. Like he literally was using her as a, was planning to use her as a human shield if he needed to. Wow. That is absolutely terrifying. And obviously I think his plan too, with taking a female is for the sexual, you know, exploitation for sure. So after only being at that first motel for a few hours, they get back into Andrea's car and they head off into the night and it's early in the morning on Tuesday, July 26 at this point. And so they're driving for a while when eventually they get to Wairika, California around 5 AM and they stop at another small motel. And I believe it was like a super eight motel or something like that, that they stopped at. And the reason why they stopped is because they needed to get another car because Andrea's car was leaking oil like crazy and he knew that eventually that would just completely burn out and stop. So they had to get a new car. So at this motel, they see this car where a guy is unloading camera equipment into his room. And this man's name is Jack Levy. And so Edwin decides that 
he's going to steal this guy's car. And they actually walk into the room and Edwin points the gun at Jack and says, give me your car keys. And Jack's like, holy shit. No, I'm not going to give you my car keys. And then just starts yelling for help. He's just like, help, help, help. And Edwin starts freaking out. And he's like, if you don't shut up, up. I'm going to shoot you. And he continues, help, help, help. So Edwin then shoots him in the stomach and Jack, you know, falls to the ground. They take the keys and take Jack's car, which luckily Jack did survive this. Um, But it was really scary for Andrea to say, wow, he's actually willing to use this gun to see him basically attempt to murder somebody in front of her. And she just remembers like how loud the gunshot was. And yeah, yeah, that really, you know, just brought things to another level for her. And she knew that this guy was not afraid to, to kill somebody. Mm -hmm. After Edwin shoots Jack, he freaks out and obviously needs to get out of there. So he had no idea where Jack's keys were and he wasn't going to wait around to try to find them. So he grabs Andrea, drags her out of the room and they take off towards the gas station next door. And at the gas station, Edwin sees a car. Somebody's pumping gas. And inside of it is 17 year old Nima Gavimi and his grandmother and younger brother. And this innocent family was just driving back to Los Angeles after a trip to Canada when Edwin approaches the car and the other two occupants of the car were actually in the bathroom of the gas station, which was his grandfather and dad. And when Nima saw Edwin approaching, he just thought, okay, I'm I'm about to get robbed. And he actually said, I didn't like pay attention too much. So I went back on the phone and then I turned around again. And like three seconds later, he threw the girl into our car, slammed the door shut and screamed, just get in. And he pointed a gun in my head saying, drive or I'll shoot. Oh my gosh, that's so scary. That's so scary, man. I can't even imagine that. I cannot imagine. So Nima, of course, is, complies mm-hmm. and they start driving south on Highway I-5. And he could hear screaming from the back seat because his grandma was in the back seat just freaking the fuck out. Oh my out. gosh, poor woman. I know. I can't I, imagine my own grandmother in that situation. Seriously. It would like The stress would like kill her. Especially so you're the scary. one driving and you got this guy with a gun pointing oh at you gosh. and your grandma's in the back seat. It's like you're just at the gas brother. station. You have no idea that something like this is going to happen to you. You have to adjust so quickly. So shocking. And Edwin's just freaking the fuck out at this point. He's like telling Nima that if you don't shut your grandmother up, I'm going to kill, you know, I'm going to kill everybody. And so he's like trying to calm the situation down, but grandma doesn't stop screaming. And while he's driving, Edwin grabs Nima's phone and scrolled through the call logs to see if he had called 911. And Nima said, at this point, I was ready to just jump out of the car. I'd rather, you know, jump out and die rather than get shot. And then he proceeded to ask us if we've ever had an urge to kill. He's like, do you guys have an urge? Have you guys ever had an urge to kill? I think he was trying to figure out if this is normal. Do Does everyone kind of low-key want to kill? Or am I just, is something wrong with me? Because this is something he has been mentally struggling with for a long time. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that he starts asking his victims, essentially, if they would do the same thing. It's just, yeah, he was in such a bad mental place, obviously. Oh, yeah, completely breaking down. Totally. Yeah, and then he goes on to say, well, I used to be a good guy. I used to be a cop, but then I just had this urge to kill, so I ran this girl over. And Nima said he didn't believe him. And then he went on and then he went on telling him a story about how he ran that girl over, then kidnapped the girl behind us, and that he drove ten hours from Ben, Oregon to where, you know, he found Nima in his car, and that he shot an old man because the guy wouldn't give him his car key. So he's just like confessing all these crimes, yeah. all these people, which is, I mean, creating witnesses against him at this point. Mm-hmm. And Nima and his brother tried to, you know, 
tried to like kind of reason with him and kind of get him to calm down a bit and also begging him to let their grandmother out of the car. Like poor poor grandma. She's going to have like a heart attack. God. And after about 15 more minutes, Edwin decided that they were going to stop at a rest stop. And he said that he looked around and there were no cars coming in and we just stopped on the side of the road and he took the car with the girl and they left. So they stopped and he did let them out. Mm -hmm. Thankfully, but not Andrea. Andrea was trying to like, Hey, what about me? Like, let me out. And he continued to tell her, no, you're my human shield. So you got to come with me. That's so freaky. Yeah. And just like that, Andrea and Edwin were back on the road again. And then a few moments later, Edwin grabs Andrea's phone and begins recording a Facebook video, which is just really bizarre. So we'll play that. Hi everybody. Um, I just want to say that I apologize for everything I've done. Most likely I'm going to get caught. And um, sorry about that girl. About that girl in Central Oregon. And I just want to let family members, uh, Andrea, that she's fine and she will be fine because so far she's been doing uh, what I've been going to do. You know, and, and if you guys are wondering uh, if I have done dirty things to her, no. All right, I'm not that kind of guy. You know, I just I used to kill that other girl. You know, and I regret it. I regret killing her. You know, she's kept screaming and I silence her forever. So, you know, like I say, she's still fine. We're driving, and she'll be home pretty soon. I'm sorry to her grandma and her family members, to her boyfriend. You know, I'm sorry for everything that I caused. Okay, and you'll see her pretty soon. Okay, tell the cops that not to shoot us, because if they shoot us, then that's not my fault. Okay, but... Sorry, everybody. Bye. It seems like Edwin is at this point where he's like struggling to figure out who he is. And part of him wants to be this like good Christian man and make this statement and be like, I'm so sorry and seem like a good guy. But then on the other hand, he's like also wants to be a serial killer. So I feel like he made that video so impulsively. He knows he's going down and he wants to be remembered as less of a bad guy than the other bad guys out there. Like, I'm not really that bad because I'm saving. I'm saving her. No, you're not. You shouldn't have fucking took her, dude. A part of me thinks also that he did that because when because then she's he goes on to tell her to put this up online right away. And so part of me is thinking, like, did he do that to try and just you know, he's already this far down the fucking road. Mm-hmm. He's He knows he's already totally screwed what he's done. So why not make it a little bit crazier of a story and people will kind of remember me and I'll become a legacy for doing yeah. this crazy thing after already murdering and kidnapping someone. Because that would go viral mm-hmm. if that went on oh, the internet. Yeah. That video would be reshared. I would probably reshared if I had known about this. You know, like that would have been passed on for sure. And he could have made himself... I mean, and I think a lot of killers at the end, they want to at least be remembered. They're mm-hmm. like, if I'm just going to go get locked up in jail, I might as well have people know who I am and know my story. And yeah, it's very interesting. He asked her to put this on her social media and she refuses. Well, 
without telling him. She doesn't want to do this in her mind. She's like, I'm not going to put that out there because I have pastors that follow me, teachers, family, and they're going to be really upset seeing me like this, which I get that. I would have done completely differently. I would have <laughs> tweeted that, put it on Facebook. I would have put that ev- absolutely everywhere because I think it would really help your own situation. Um, I would almost see that as like, wow, you're going to let me make a post and like show where I am and who you are. And because in my mind, I'm thinking if he kills me and what if this goes unsolved, they never even figure out it was him. So I would have definitely posted that personally, but she made the decision to post it and put it on only like you can be the only one to see it. Yeah. On Facebook, you have an option to Mm -hmm. post to your friends or to everybody or to just yourself. And so, you know, she didn't want to post it originally, but she's like, okay, well, I'll post it, but I'll just post it to my page so yeah. only I can see it. So he didn't know that. He right. doesn't know what exactly she's doing. But Which honestly, good for her because then he doesn't get that, you know, right. all that attention. Mm-hmm. So right. I see both sides worked, for sure. Obviously, uh, from a safety perspective, absolutely mm-hmm. post that out there yeah. and get as many eyes on right. it as possible. That would be my thinking, but, but I personally, see what she did. Why? It worked out better for her in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's weird is he wanted her to title it Murderer on the Loose. That's such a yeah. clickbaity title. Like yep. you can tell he just wants to be famous yep. for doing this whack ass shit. And then maybe kind of like you were saying, maybe in the in a sick way, kind of be a hero for saving yeah. her. I'm not as bad as some of the bad people that are out there. Like I'm a nice murderer. Oh my god. He's he's just so mentally screwed up at this point. Like his his intentions, his brain's gotta be all over the place. I'm sure he wasn't planning on it all happening like this. It's not like he Actually, we don't know. Maybe he did go out that night looking for someone to kill. That's possible. But chances are he ran into Kaylee and this all like happened. He took his chance and it spiraled. Like, I don't think he under- he planned for these three days to go like this. Right. So right. I think he's just trying to like wrap his head around what's going on and what he's done and, you know, what the repercussions of it are going to be. Mm-hmm. He's probably yeah. doing a lot of thinking as they're driving because it's not like she's talking to him that much. She's like, yeah. fuck you. Yeah. So... After the Facebook video, though, he gets on the phone with his wife, Isabel. And from what Andrea could make out, it sounds like they were talking and she was trying to convince him, like, stop, turn yourself in. Like, this has to end. Don't do anything else. Mm-hmm. And at this point in time, they're about 30 miles south of Redding, California. And Edwin knew that, you know, he was close to being caught and it was only so long before, you know, he would be arrested. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he starts speeding extremely fast like 120 miles an hour i think is the speed they reached at one point and then he took out andrea's phone and called 911 on himself so here's that call 911 emergency reporting yes hi this is edwin lara and i'm the guy on interstate interstate five going at high speed i i know you guys have the chopper on me already yeah and uh, yeah i just want to say i am going to turn myself in okay where are you at okay i'm on i-5 uh, I think close to Reading, if I'm right. You know, I, I am wanted for murder in the state of Oregon. Okay. Edwin, yeah. where are you at right now? Can you stop? I am going to stop once I head Reading. Once I'm in Reading, I'm going to stop. Okay, can you tell me where you are right now? I have no idea. Okay. Uh, oh, let's see. There's a sign right here. 50 miles from Reading. You're 50 miles from Reading. Oh, wait, wait. Can you Corning, Corning. From Corning. 50 miles uh, south or north of Corning. Are you by yourself or? No, I have someone with me. I kidnapped her in Oregon. She's innocent. Uh, her name is Andrea. What's your last name? He doesn't know. 
I'll let you. I'll, I'll let her give her last name. You can call her family, okay? Okay. Just give me a, just give me a second. Hello. Yeah. Hi. What's your name? Andrea. Andrea. What's your last name? Maze. M A E S. Okay. Are you hurt at all, Andrea? No. No. Okay. Can, do you know where you are? Let me talk to Edwin again. Okay. Uh, Hello. Yeah, Edwin. Um, you're heading southbound on on five. Yeah, I'm heading southbound on five. Did you make it past Reading yet? I think I did. I'm 50 miles from Corning. You're 50 miles from Corning? Yeah, 1515. So I'm passing a state trooper, a highway patrol right now. You're what, sir? I'm passing a highway patrol. Are you able yes. to safely find somewhere to stop? I'm not going to stop right here. I'm just going to turn myself in and, and uh, Corning, okay? Are you going uh, to Corning Police, or where are you going? Yeah, I'm going to Corning Police, but I want to ask you a favor. Uh-huh. So I have asthma. You have asthma? Okay. Yeah, so you tell them not to be too rough on me because, you know, I, I can't really breathe right now. All right, so that's all I wanted to say. Do you, you know, need I don't any want... kind of medical or? I think so. I'm going to need my inhaler. I forgot my inhaler at home. Edwin, how fast are you going? I'm going about 120 miles an You're hour about right 120 now. miles an hour? Yes. Can you slow down? Yes, um, Edwin, yes. do you have any weapons with you? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I do have a gun on me. I am not going to flash the gun, so you tell them not to shoot me. Okay. No, I don't want to die. Okay, you stick by your word, though. I'll let them know. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm going to let them know. You know, uh, don't hurt Andrea. You know, she's a nice girl. You know, don't hurt her. I'm I'm actually calling my family just to say bye to them. So once I'm, once I'm done calling all my family, then I'll, I'll turn myself in. Okay, um, we can get a hold of your family if you want. I already called my wife. I called a lot of people already. I am wanted for the death of uh, Kaylee Sawyer at Bend, Oregon. I just want to say that it was an accident. Edwin, are uh, you able to stop? The officers behind you, they don't know if you're running and stuff or, or trying to run from them. So if you can safely stop, they'll have the freeway block and nobody will get hurt. I will stop right now. You want me to throw my gun out of the window right now? Okay, no, not right now. No, no, no. Don't do that right now. Okay, I'll let you talk to Andrea. Okay, are you going to okay. stop? Yeah, I'm going to stop. Okay, right once you stop, make sure they can see your okay. hands at all yep. time, okay? All right. Yes. Hello? Yeah, hi, Andrea. Are hi. you okay? You don't need any medical or anything? No. Okay, so Edwin, where's his gun at? Does he have it still between his legs? I don't know. Can you see it? He said he had it between his legs. Is he stopping? Yeah. He is stopping? Mm-hmm. Okay, make sure your hands are up, too, and stuff. I, I know you're on the phone right now, but just hold your hand up so they can see your hands, too. Okay. I'm going to stay on the line with you until the officers get there, okay? And you're going to be okay. Andrea? Mm -hmm. Does Edwin have, does he have his hands up? Yeah. He does have his hands up? Okay. Just tell him to make sure that the officers... Hey, are you? Just uh -huh. turn around and back up, walk backwards towards them. Don't walk facing them. Okay. Uh, she told me to stay in the okay, car. Okay, she told you to stay in the car? Okay, then yeah. so whatever instructions they give you, then do that. Okay. But several minutes after the 911 call, Edwin pulls over. Because, I mean, at this point, there's like seven mm -hmm. cop cars behind him chasing him down the highway. So he knew his time was up. Yeah, and they there's so much footage with this case. And they actually have the dash cam police footage uh, released showing them pulling over Edwin. Uh, that's pretty interesting as well. And if you didn't catch it in the actual dash cam footage itself, you can hear the officer ask Edwin, why is he wearing body armor? Cause he was wearing a bulletproof vest. And apparently he tells the police that 
I came to throw down. So he was like, I think he was kind of planning and wrestling yeah. with maybe just like fighting it out to the death and, you know, or even suicide taking his own life. Yeah. 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 Murder, suicide or something like that. So I think he thought it was definitely a possibility. Mm-hmm. So 30 minutes after all of this, he is booked and processed at the Tahama County jail, but not only him, they actually booked and processed Andrea as well because they weren't fully aware of the situation. Uh, mm-hmm. And they had heard originally that Andrea might've been a co-conspirator in this. So they treated her just like him and threw her in jail as well. And that was like such a traumatic experience on top of everything oh she already gosh, goes through. This poor girl. And she had just gotten off a 12 hour shift at Ross. She must be so fucking Ugh. tired. Oh my God. And just petrified. But you, I wouldn't even be able to sleep after all this. No. Yeah. It's and insane. of course, like she's thinking, you know, this is all over as she's getting pulled over. Yeah. Edwin's getting arrested. Yeah. Like, you know, weight lifted off. No, arrest her too. Yeah. Insane. Which at that point, if I were her, I'd be like, I don't give a fuck if you arrest me. Like yeah. you're going to find out soon. It has nothing to do yeah. with me. I'm just thankful to right. honestly, I'm thankful to see you police officers, yeah. no matter what happens. Oh, right. I'd be just crying hysterically as soon as I saw them. And I mean, it didn't take long for police to figure out mm-hmm. that she was the victim in this case and not a co-conspirator. Cause Obviously, word got out that Edwin got arrested and, you know, the police detectives in Oregon were contacted and they came down to California. And so they were able to get her out fairly quickly uh-huh. uh, after she was uh, booked into jail. And once the police from Oregon came down, they sat down and interviewed Edwin and Edwin gives a complete confession, which the whole interview actually lasts six hours. But there is an edited version of it, which will I'll play for you now. What's it doing, Matt? Closer Redmond? Mm-hmm. Okay, so about, I'm thinking maybe not even 10 miles. Let's keep going. Okay. There's a mailbox right here. It reads 18700. It's right across it. It's going to be on the uh, south side of the road. So if this is north, like the uh, yeah, that's north. It's gonna be on the south side. Okay. And this is gonna be east towards Redmond, correct? And this is gonna be west towards Sisters. What happened, man? What happened? Like the straight up, what happened? So I was putting the signs up where there was an event going on. It's a college. Cyclist event. You know, I was in a hurry because I wanted to get out of here. And I was going to turn south on College Way on the D4 lot. So I was going to turn south on the do not enter area there. And I didn't see her. She was wearing all black. So I was in a hurry, so it was my fault. And I wasn't expecting anybody, you know, at that time of night. So I just turned and and I, I mean, I didn't hit her that hard. I used bumper with the, the patrol car, bumped mm-hmm. her with the front rack. And she fell down. And at first I thought, you know, first thing I was, oh, I killed her, you know, but I didn't hit her that hard. So I got off the car and she was really drunk. And then she looks at me and then she started screaming. 
she started screaming at you. She did. So I panicked and I grabbed her to tell her, shut up, shut up, shut up. So she passed out. I put her on the back of the patrol car, drove her up the B12 lot. And then I was panicking, I didn't know what to do. She already seen me, she saw my face. <clears throat> so I opened the door and that's when she came back. She started screaming again. So I grabbed the charcoal and I was telling her, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. She was just struggling to scream. So I threw her down and my head over the rock on the head. After that, I drive her body <clears throat> behind a tree there and at this point in time, detectives obviously know that Kaylee is probably deceased at this point, but their first goal for the sake of the family is to try to figure out where her body is. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what their motivation for interviewing Edwin at this point was like, we just want to know yeah. where Kaylee's body is. Like yeah, they cut right to the chase. They're like, tell us where the body is before we even get into any of the rest of the last couple of days and what you've been through. Right. We need to know that ASAP. And his answer is very telling. He says, I want to tell you where the body is. I do, but I want to get home first. And in the interview, as you can see, he was like very chill. Like he seemed very calm. Like when he was he being interviewed, like he was not really worried that much. Mm -hmm. And he even offered out of nowhere to draw a map of where he dumped her body. Obviously after they said, okay, we're going to take you back to Oregon, you know, as soon as we can, Obviously, that's a process in order to extradite somebody from yeah. California to Oregon. But we need to know where she is now. Right. So after they kind of worked out that deal, he draws this map uh, of where her body is. And he describes a mailbox with the numbers 18700 on Highway 126 in Oregon. And he said the body was right across the highway from that spot. So obviously, uh, Sergeant Beckwith at this point contacts his coworkers back in Oregon who go out to search that area and they return to questioning Edwin who immediately tells them that he accidentally hit Kaylee with the patrol vehicle that night uh, while he was patrolling the central Oregon community college campus. He then said though that after he hit her, he choked her in order to shut her up, which I'm like, if you hit her with a car, if she, he said she was screaming because she got hit by the car mm -hmm. and he char started choking her because she wouldn't stop screaming. Yeah, right. Which that doesn't make any sense. Obviously, police are like, dude, that doesn't make any sense yeah. either. Well, he's trying to make it seem like, oh, I just had a bad moment. I hit her and then I got scared and covered it up. Right, because he's like technically, he knew he committed a crime that, you know, I hit somebody yeah. and I was going, he admitted that he was like, I was going too fast and, you know, this was a hit and run accident and he knew he'd be in trouble for it. But then he says that he chokes her, then puts her in her car and then puts her in his car continues choking her to the point that he kills her. And this story makes no sense to detectives. And so they decide to switch tactics on him. And that's when detective McLaughlin comes back in. He's the path, you know, former pastor that I was telling you about. And so he approaches it uh, from a spiritual perspective and a religious perspective. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, you're going to be stand before God. You know, you got to confess to everything. Mm -hmm. Like if you want to repent your sins, you got it. This is how yeah, you got to do it, them. right? Yeah. You got to own up to everything that you did. Mm -hmm. And 
Then Edwin gives the real story about what happened that night. And the real story is he did not hit her with his patrol vehicle. Mm -hmm. He saw her walking alone and he essentially murdered her. Mm -hmm. He got the urge to kill and she started screaming. He approached it as like, I want sex from you pretty much. And when she refused, they got into an argument because, you know, he was going to rape her regardless. It seemed like that was his first motivation was he was going to rape Kaylee. Mm-hmm. And when Kaylee refused, started screaming for help. That's when he, he, got, he freaked out, flip switched, mm-hmm. grabs a rock, starts bashing her head in mm-hmm. and oh, it's so awful puts her into the patrol vehicle and everything. And he eventually, after he kills her, ends up raping her. And he admitted that to the after detectives. She was dead. I mean, he is a sick fucking man. Yeah. And he claimed that he thought Kaylee was a prostitute. Because she was wearing a dress and heels? I guess. You but work on a college campus, though. It's you Saturday see that all the night. Time. It's like, what was it? It was probably around like midnight or one. It's pretty normal. Yeah. And what's fucked up about this is that the way he approached the whole situation was like, he's in his uniform, mm-hmm. he's in his campus security officer, and, and the whole, you know, to initiate the conversation, he's like, do you need a ride? And so, and so like she gets in the car and then at some point he's like, Mm -hmm. I want sex or something for the ride. And then things just get out of control and you know, he's accusing her of being a hooker and everything. Can you imagine doing that? And then going home, sleeping a few hours, maybe if you can fall asleep after that and then going to church the next day Mm -hmm. with your wife. Mm -hmm. What the fuck? Yeah. I mean, and detectives, as they dug in more and more, they started realizing that this was definitely more of a premeditated murder here because it's kind of looking for someone. Yeah. His story was not making any sense. And obviously, like, you know, if he thought Kaylee was a prostitute, why do you put her in the back of the patrol car mm-hmm. where the door is clearly locked from the inside and she can't get out? Oh, he knew she was a student. And why? Why do you take her purse? Yeah. And Edwin said, because. She was going to call 911. But the way that they approached it was they basically like shamed him into telling them like, because yeah. I mean, from and from like a law enforcement perspective, like, dude, you're a fucking technically yeah. like a, a person in power, a law enforcement official. Part of the criminal justice community. Like what kind of coward are you that Seriously. you would do something like this? And, and take advantage of your position. Mm-hmm. And this is a huge issue that we have with people in security positions or even people just posing as cops. Mm-hmm. It's happened so many times where people think that someone that's wearing a uniform or is there to protect and serve your community or campus or whatever is not going to hurt you. You can trust them. Yeah. And that's probably how he lured her to his car. Yep. And yeah. And on that note, that's exactly what Kaylee's bill is about. The Senate bill is about. It it essentially says that campus security officers have to look way different from police officers. Like there's got to be a distinct uh, difference in uniforms and vehicles so that people can identify each as such as opposed to confusing the two together. Cause that's what happened is Kaylee confused him as an actual police officer. Yep. And but, it's gotta be easy enough for someone to tell when they're drunk, mm-hmm. you know, cause mm-hmm. that's just part of college. You know, there's tons of drinking that goes on and there's a, oftentimes where people are wandering around and like, you know, are intoxicated. And if you walk up to someone thinking it's a police officer, it's got to be easy enough to tell the difference even when you're under the influence. Right. Well, and the, the big thing here too is that nine times out of 10 security officers do not go through the same training. They don't have the same level of background checks done. They don't have mm-hmm. the same level of anything that a, a, a ordinary police officer has, 
which doesn't say that a police officer can do fucked up shit, but it's definitely a less likely chance because Mm -hmm. security officers, it's not that hard to become a security officer. You don't have any, have to have any educate, you know, you don't, the requirements are far less strict. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to go through the police academy, not the same, Mm -hmm. not the same at all. Mm -hmm. And so there should be a difference between them. You shouldn't confuse the two together. Uh So later on, in the police interrogation room, Edwin goes on to talk about how I think all throughout my life, I have struggled with an urge to kill and that he told, and that he went on to say he had an urge to kill the uncle of an ex-girlfriend of his. And he said that he didn't go through with it, but he talked about how he managed those urges throughout his life. Well, this goes back to the conversation of is someone born as a serial killer? Is that possible to be born with the urge to kill? Or is that something that, you pick up in your life based on childhood trauma or something else. It's interesting him talking about that urge that he experienced. And it seems like a lot of serial killers, you know, have that pretty young and they fight their whole lives to try to most of them, you know, you'd hope that you would try, but it, it makes, it's interesting to think about people out there who have those urges and are actually controlling them. Like how many people out there do have urge to kill and are able to control that. I think from my perspective, I think it's absolutely a real thing because yes. if you think about it, everybody has an urge to do something. And, you know, obviously they're not you can equate different things on different levels, but I think people could, you know, especially if you struggle with rage and anger and all these different things, you know, you might have an urge to, you know, beat somebody up. You mm-hmm. like to just pound people's faces in uh-huh. or you like to break things. Some people just like to break shit, steal things. Mm -hmm. I have an urge to steal, Uh you know, or I have a fire, you know, I have an urge to set fires to things. Mm -hmm. I think it's a totally real thing. There's something psychological going on uh, with this. Yeah. Not that there's an excuse for it in any way, but it is interesting to think about the mind and how someone gets to this point where they just want to kill someone so bad. Right. And maybe if you do have that, urge inside of you, then it's kind of interesting to think about if you were to get the help that you needed and you're able to manage it properly with support around you or whatever it is, then maybe that it never comes to that. Mm -hmm. But I guess if perhaps someone lives a really hard life or they go through something traumatic or they don't have the support they need, then that urge just kind of takes over. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think the I don't know the debate about if it's genetic or not. It's, it's hard to say, cause I don't know if there's any definitive proof of that. There's really not. And I think there is definitely like trauma and other factors that come into play that could affect that. And also like, if you train your mind or fill your mind with certain things, you can definitely, Mm -hmm. you know, start, you know, kind of reprogramming it in a way to Mm -hmm. start thinking something might be okay. Um, when it's really not. So, What's interesting, though, is that the detectives actually asked Edwin to write a letter to Kaylee's family because I think they really broke him down in that interrogation. And obviously coming at him with the religious perspective is is an interesting tactic. And Mm -hmm. he really seemed to show remorse for what he did. So they're like, what could help is if you write a letter to her family. And that's what he did. He wrote a letter to Jamie, her father. And and they also they also want to do that so they can get another version of yeah. things written down. It's not like they're that concerned with what the family thinks of him. They're, they're not trying to like help him right, right, right. make this better in any way, but they're breaking them, them down more information. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're trying to make this case a slam dunk, so they'll you know do whatever they can to do that. 
And so Edwin apparently was crying when he was left alone in a room to write this letter. And it reads, I've been trying to ask Kaylee for forgiveness, but I don't think her soul hears my crying because God doesn't allow the devil to talk to angels. However, I know Kaylee hears you. And if you find it in your heart, please ask her to forgive me. Ugh, that's so sick to ask the family to forgive. Yeah. What the yeah. hell? Please. I beg that's you. That's all please. he cares about is forgiveness for him. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then he goes on like, I know that I'll spend the rest of my life asking God to forgive me, but I don't think he'll hear me. I'm not sure what your name is, but I know for a fact you love your daughter. I read somewhere you were desperately searching for your daughter. I failed you. I failed my community. I failed everyone. I'm really sorry. I beg you. A man like me doesn't deserve the job I had and I'll never have it again. I'm sorry for wearing the badge. May Kaylee Sawyer rest in peace. I'm sure Jamie's father was like, fuck your letter. Torch that shit. Mm -hmm. Cause no, that, that, that's like my whole thing with like religion is like people can do the most heinous fucked up shit. Mm -hmm. And then they somehow like get, you know, yeah. Repentance for that. Like I don't, by just saying a prayer or something, it just doesn't make any sense to me. So meanwhile, detectives back in Oregon are looking for the car that he ditched uh, at the Salem dress for less store uh, moments before he kidnapped Andrea and inside the car, they found two handwritten notes. And the first note says the place I killed her is on the B 12 lot run her over on college way. The second note says this note is to say, I'm sorry for taking her life. One eight seven zero zero to her dad. I'm sorry to her mom. I'm sorry. It was an accident. She screamed and I had to silence her. My intention was not forever to my wife. I'm sorry. I will forever love you. So it's interesting that he continues to like say all these things the whole time. Like you said, it's clear that he's like wrestling with all this. Uh huh. So officers in Oregon head towards the location that Edwin had drawn on the map. And what's interesting is that officers at first thought like one eight seven zero zero. What is that? And they know that one eight seven is also the California penal code for murder. Mm -hmm. So was Edwin like playing some kind of mind game with them or was it just a coincidence that he wrote that? And when they arrived at the location, it was kind of a, a foresty area. There was like a small Canyon filled with pine trees, rocks and sagebrush. And the officer that was there was running down the road next to the guardrail, looking to the left, which is South. And as he ran West, he came across what he believed to be Miss Sawyer laying on the rocks. And he said, I thought she was alive and I thought she was attempting to crawl up the face of the rocks, but I checked her pulse and she didn't have any vital signs. Oh my gosh. And then the DA actually uh, went to the scene, uh, district attorney, John Hummel. And he said, when you think about where he dumped her body, it's just the most awful of circumstances. You don't do that to somebody. He just left her just yeah. like piece of trash, mm-hmm. just threw her to the side of the road. I wonder if there is even a possibility that she could have been saved. You know, like I wonder how bad her injuries were at the point where he left her there. Is it possible that she was unconscious? And if she was brought to the hospital, they could have saved her. If she had been found right away, it's likely. I mean, it's, it seems like she most likely died of blood loss, mm-hmm. probably in blunt force trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the medical examiner actually determined though that she died from the actual blunt force trauma. So him mashing her with the rock because he attacked her initially and then, you know, he went back and and did it again because he wanted to make certain that she was dead. But back in California, Edwin was arraigned on charges of attempted murder, kidnapping and carjacking. And he was eventually extradited back to Oregon And in the coming weeks, he started preparing with his attorney for trial. 
And his attorneys argued that Edwin's confession was inadmissible in court because his rights had been violated. Apparently, when Edwin had been first booked into the jail in California, he had indicated to jail staff that he wanted to speak with a lawyer. And the staff there thought he was asking a procedural question and not specifically asking for an attorney. And under the California Penal Code, new arrivals in jail must be given a chance to make three phone calls within three hours of being booked. And Edwin was in a holding cell for five hours and was never allowed to make any calls. So the judge during his pretrial hearing threw out his six hour confession and said it couldn't be used as evidence. Wow. That's insane. Mm -hmm. Which this was crushing Mm -hmm. for the detectives and for the prosecutors because they made a bunch of promises to the family Mm -hmm. that, you know, we're going to get him. And they just made one mistake. Mm hmm. It was a truly crushing blow for them. So after Edwin's confession is thrown out by the judge, they have to then, you know, approach prosecuting him differently. So they have to go strictly off of the uh, forensic evidence and the evidence they collected uh, from his shed and, and the scenes in order to, you know, get him convicted. And the DA in the case actually said it was a, a, a real struggle to, you know, consider giving him the death penalty because he morally opposes the death penalty. And it seems like I think the family wanted to go that route, Mm -hmm. but because of the confession being thrown out and stuff, he felt like he could not go that route that they could possibly, you know, lose because Mm -hmm. if they went too far, there's always a risk with going for the death Mm -hmm. penalty. Mm -hmm. You have to have more proof, more evidence. So Edwin actually pled guilty to all the charges he was indicted on. So there was no trial and that at, makes it a lot easier for it the does. family too. It does. There to wasn't this that. long drawn out thing where he's fighting it. And, uh, it's, it's really hard to go through. Well, he knew he was hosed too. I mean, he yeah. confessed to multiple witnesses. Like even if it had gone to a jury, it, he knew that he would have been, you know, convicted mm-hmm. uh, on the charges. So rather than go through that whole process, he just pled guilty. And, you know, at his sentencing and all of that, his Kaylee and at his sentencing, Kaylee's friends and family were given a chance to speak and, and really drill into him. I think her dad called him like a scumbag and that he should rot in hell for what he did. Mm -hmm. And what's so weird is that at the end of it, Edwin's attorney told the judge that his client wanted to ask for forgiveness and Edwin gets up, turns around and gives this fucking bone chilling prayer in front of the family. It's almost like he's a priest giving a sermon. Like he is up there preaching to the courtroom like oh god i mean we should just play the clip there's just a little clip yeah okay let's play that god almighty who are in heaven oh the evil tonight i'll ask you please heal the hearts all those broken hearts of this community isn't that insane and her family got so pissed they yeah, just left if he if someone did that to me i would literally get up and like Punch yeah. them in the fucking face. Absolutely not. I'd be so pissed. He's clearly not mentally yeah. right. I mean, yeah. most people would know that that's just not appropriate at all. Mm-hmm. But after he does this, the judge hands down his sentence and he pleads guilty to the one count of aggravated murder and one count of robbery. And he receives life in prison with no chance of parole for what he did. It's as good as it's probably going to get. Mm-hmm. But detectives weren't done working on Kaylee's case even after Edwin was sentenced. Police are still actively searching for someone else who is believed to be involved in the case. During Edwin's confession, he mentioned his cousin, Vinny. 
So they think Vinny may have been involved in helping him cover up the crime and may have helped him move Kaylee's body. Like he called him freaking out and mm-hmm. said like, hey man, I gotta mm-hmm. have, you know, I'm in a shitty situation right now. I need help. Because it's not, you know, he did move her body from the original place to another place where he dumped it. Mm-hmm. And he even admits that it was very difficult to do that. And mm-hmm. he says it was all him, but police seem to think there might've been somebody that helped him with it. So if you know the whereabouts of Melvin Rosalio Perez Mejia, you're you're asked to call the Redmond, Oregon Police Department at 541-504-3400. I mean, he wouldn't be hiding if he had nothing to hide. Right. right? He disappeared. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And obviously Edwin's wife was completely just destroyed by, oh my gosh, by yeah. what Edwin did. And she filed for divorce in August 2016, just weeks after Kaylee's murder. And not long after filing for divorce, she also resigned as a Bend police officer, ending her short 13-month career in law enforcement. And she said it wasn't an easy decision, but she just felt like, you know, how can she possibly, like, mm-hmm. go into law enforcement when her husband was this murderer? Yeah, I understand that. Almost three years after Edwin murdered Kaylee Sawyer, he was back in court in Eugene, Oregon in April 2019. And this time he was facing charges connected to the kidnapping of Andrea Mays. And the judge handed down Edwin another life sentence to be served concurrently with his sentence for Kaylee's murder. And the prosecutor actually said that Edwin is one of the most dangerous men to ever walk through that courthouse. Wow. Mm-hmm. He really tries to put on an act. Yeah. Now this is really interesting because Edwin's attorney claimed that the crime spree was an enigma and gave a possible explanation for why he did what he did. The attorney cited Edwin's alleged myotonic dystrophy, a genetic degenerative cognitive brain condition. And we don't know much like how he argued this in court or anything like that, but Edwin did undergo a recent evaluation that showed the brain condition and that his mother also has it. Obviously muscular dystrophy can affect muscles and other organs, but the term myotonic refers to the inability to relax muscles at will. And the organization goes on to say that, uh, DM can cause learning disabilities, apathetic demeanor, and impairments in cognitive functioning. Yeah. Note how it says nothing about could cause you to be a serial killer and maybe <laughs> exactly. murder someone. Like, yeah. yeah, it can cause memory issues and, you know, other cognitive functioning, but I don't think that has anything to do with the fact that he killed Kaylee. Or it's not giving him that urge to kill. No. Yeah. I don't know. I don't really see the connection there. And it sounds like Clearly, the judge yeah. was like, this is just a bunch it's of a bullshit. Last, last ditch effort. They're going to use whatever they can. It's hard to defend someone like this. Mm-hmm. Kaylee's family has been just devastated since this happened. They're still trying to kind of get their life back together. As a way to keep her legacy alive, her mom started a program called KK Readers, which KK was Kaylee's nickname as a kid. And the program donates Dr. Seuss books, specifically the one, Oh, the Places You'll Go, to children in Head Start preschool classrooms all over Central Oregon. Yeah, that's a really good it's book. It's really by nice. The way. Yeah. It is. Kaylee's family also advocated for change on a state level with Kaylee's law, and it was approved unanimously by the House and the Senate because it just makes sense. Mm-hmm. It mandates stricter vetting of private security officers like the ones at Central Oregon Community College. Campuses are now required to conduct nationwide background checks on the officers. Their uniforms must look different from those of police officers, and also the law requires vehicles to have. GPS devices and video systems that prohibits them from having a red light or a blue light on top of the car. 
um, or a cage inside, like the one that was in police cars. Which I think is absolutely required yeah. because security officers are not allowed to arrest anybody. No, so why, why do they, they need, need a, a car just like a police, a police officer does? Especially on a does. campus. Yeah. It's super weird. And also, it's pretty standard for all security uh, officers, no matter what company you work for, to have GPSs on their vehicles. Like, uh, the fact that they didn't, like, they should yeah. be, the supervisor's always, like, tracking them. Like, mm-hmm. the fact that this college, I mean, I get it's, like, a little community college, so maybe they have the budget or whatever, but that just seems like a no-brainer to me. Like, all security officers should be, like, tracked and watched and supervised because you are not a real police officer. You do not have the same power and ability to you know, arrest somebody. I mean, they can detain people, but there shouldn't be, it shouldn't be on the same level as a police officer. And actually the family is looking at the community college, their actions here and what maybe they could have done something to prevent this. So they are opening a lawsuit against them for their role. Yep. And I hope they win that they should. Yeah. I also think it's weird that they didn't have mandatory background checks nationwide nationwide. I mean, I feel like that's pretty simple, especially if you're in any sort of position with authority, you should be having a background check nationwide. Absolutely. And I think we just assume that about security guards that would just make sense to us. So we think that's how it's happening. Yeah, but it doesn't always happen. And there's negligence that that occurs. And unfortunately this resulted in somebody being murdered by a security officer. It is always nice though, in cases like this, when something good can come out of it, that there's a silver lining, there's a law that hopefully because of Kaylee's death, it might prevent others from having the same fate. Absolutely. And that's got to feel good as her parents, at least feeling like their daughter is in a way making a change, even after she's gone, making Mm -hmm. a difference. Yeah. Obviously it doesn't take away the pain and anguish of, of losing her, but it does you know, kind of give them hope that at least, you know, she didn't die in vain and and can save other people. Yeah. I think it's honestly really inspiring when a family goes through something so, so devastating like this and they, you know, take a stance and stand back up and try and their best to make a difference of some sort to help people in the future and protect those who could potentially, you know, they could have saved lives for all they know with this law. I'm sure it does. So I I just think it's so inspiring that they're able to do that. I just give them any, any family who's able to, try and make good out of any situation like this is really inspiring. And yeah, it's gotta be difficult to even function after your daughter is Mm -hmm. murdered, let alone set up this cool program for other students. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, pushing a bill into place is not easy. Yeah. It's hard to do. And it's, it's mentally taxing to have to focus on all this other stuff while you're also trying to grieve. So yeah, I have mad respect for the family. Um, and I'm really glad that something came out of this. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there's a law now. Yeah. And Edwin is right where he should be. Exactly. And he'll never be let out. Never see the light of day. Piece so. of shit. Absolutely. Yeah. But we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the Mile Heart Podcast. We'll be back next week with another kind of true crime, paranormal, yeah, weird, weird situation. One. Yeah. Uh, but hopefully you guys will be excited for that. Be yeah. sure to subscribe on YouTube. Be sure to hit thumbs up. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, all of the things. Be sure to check out milehire.com for all of our merch. Is that it? Yeah, and check out Lights Out. Yeah, <laughs> if you want some more podcasts, out. check out Lights Out. But that's it for us this week. Be sure to stay safe and take your mind a mile higher. We'll see you guys next time.